We are picking up where we left off in this series through the first book of the Bible, and we are looking at Genesis chapter 41. If you are using a copy of the Church Bible, you'll find that on page 34. And as always, I want to encourage you to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. I think it'll be a great help both to you and to me to be doing so. And we are going to look this morning at the entirety of Genesis chapter 41, and yet I, I will skip a few sections because it is a lengthy chapter, and we'll try to paraphrase those sections as we go along. Um, let me just pray briefly for us before we look at this portion of God's word together this morning. Father in heaven, again, we commit ourselves to you and we commit this portion of our service to you. We pray that you would give us a great hunger for the scriptures. We pray that you would change us by the preaching of your word, Lord. You have promised that by the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified, you would manifest your wisdom and your power. And so we pray that more of your wisdom and more of your power would both be um, proclaimed and would be experienced by all who are present here. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would enable us to hear you and to hear the voice of the Son of God and to come forth and to live and to go to you and to flee to you and to see you more clearly and to love you more affectionately and to trust you more wholly. And we pray that you would help us now and bless the ministry of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 41, beginning in verse 1, Joseph here is in prison. He has been forgotten by both. Uh, has been forgotten by uh, the butler who was restored. The baker, you'll remember, was uh, put to death by Pharaoh once they were brought out of prison. And Joseph has been left in that place of uh, symbolic death in that dungeon. And now, in Genesis 41, we read. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians in Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offense today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dream to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. 
God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Joseph, from verses 17 through 24, uh, listens as Pharaoh relays this dream to him. In verse 25, we read, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after that there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land. Joseph says in verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. Set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint uh, overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it, that food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Uh, Pharaoh receives Joseph's instruction. He honors him. He sets him in this place of great power. In verse 43, we're told that Pharaoh made Joseph ride in the second chariot and called out before him to everyone, bow the knee. Thus, he set him over all the land of Egypt. Now, after giving him more power and more benefit as his counselor and changing Joseph's name, we are told in verse 46 that Joseph was 30 when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And we're told in verse 49, Joseph stood up, stored up grain in abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it because it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, and that is by his marriage to Pharaoh's daughter, Asenath, the daughter of uh, Potiphar, I'm sorry, Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. The seven years of famine began to come. And as Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do it. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, as I told you already this morning, I had the opportunity to go on a Civil War uh, leadership trip in Gettysburg this week, and one of the most important lessons taught were those lessons about the interaction of the different generals in the Confederate Army. And, And if you know anything about Gettysburg, you will know that there were one or two missteps among the generals who were below 
Robert E. Lee and did not listen to the instruction of Robert E. Lee and ultimately cost them the battle there, though, though many have said it was, it was um, a, a stalemate in some respects. They really lost the Civil War that day in Gettysburg on account of the misstep of these men who acted not with wisdom but acted on their own. Now, one of the things that I took away was how important wisdom is in leadership, how important it is to have wise and understanding leaders, how important it is to listen to wise and understanding leaders, and how essential it is for leaders to learn to lead with uh, divine wisdom and for people to follow wisely, follow after them and work with them. And as we come to Genesis chapter 41, we find one of the greatest stories of leadership in the Bible. It is one of the most impressive stories of wise leadership in all of the scriptures. And yet, there's something so wonderful about what happens to Joseph in this chapter, because what is highlighted is not so much Joseph's leadership and and the wisdom that God gave him, but it's God's wisdom, ordering and working out his plan and, and raising up a deliverer for his people and for the entire world. And... We, the last time we were together, saw that Joseph was in prison. And, and if you had not read further, if you had only read through Genesis chapter 40 as an Israelite, if this was the first time you had ever read through the Bible in a country where this wasn't taught to little children in, in nice little Bible story picture books, you would think things are hopeless and bleak for Joseph. The story of Joseph is one of those long, short stories. It is, it is an interesting story because it seems to go on forever, and yet it has these short little cameos in it. And, and as Joseph has been in prison, as Joseph has been afflicted, as Joseph is learning to become the man that God wants him to be, and God is preparing him in the suffering and the affliction, first at the hands of his brothers, then at the false accusation of Potiphar's wife, and then being thrown into prison by Potiphar, and now being forgotten by the man, the man that he helped when he was in prison. Joseph is becoming exactly who God wants him to be. And as we move into Genesis 41, we are going to see that Joseph goes instantly from being a prisoner to being the prime minister of Egypt overnight. Now, that's one of the interesting aspects of this long, short story of the life of Joseph. God has been moving very slowly in Joseph's life. Remember, this has been 14 years. 14 years have, have passed since Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers at 17. Now we are moving into the 14th year, and Joseph is about to be elevated to a place of power instantly. Now, there's a lesson there before we get into this, and that, that short lesson is that sometimes the Lord seems to move very slowly in the lives of his people. And sometimes he moves very quickly in the lives of his people. And I think part of that is because the Lord will work out his purposes. He will bring about his plans. Everything about Joseph's life is about God working out his purposes and his plan. God is bringing his people to Egypt so that he can deliver them from Egypt so that he can give us a picture of the gospel. And God is working all this out. And Joseph doesn't know exactly what God is doing. And the Lord has been moving very slowly in Joseph's life. But now as we press into the exaltation of Joseph and God raising up Joseph to be this wise deliverer and this wise leader, 
and to place him in this position of exalted power, things are moving very, very quickly. And as we come to Genesis 41, we're going to see two things this morning. First, we're going to see that God makes it necessary for a deliverer to be raised up. We're going to see the need for deliverance. And then secondly, we're going to consider the exaltation of a deliverer, the need of deliverance and the exaltation of a deliverer. Well, Pharaoh has had these dreams. They're disturbing. I remember as a young boy, we had one of those uh, cartoon Bible story magazines, and, and they had pictures of these lean cows and these fat cows, and it freaked me out. I can't, I can't, I, I can't explain it. I was a child. It was scary. Um, I, I imagine Pharaoh was freaked out when he saw these skinny cows eat these fat cows. That's kind of freaky. And, uh, and he's bothered by these dreams. And he's bothered by what God has revealed to him. The Lord is revealing something to Pharaoh, and he doesn't have to. Pharaoh is not a good and a godly man. Pharaoh is not part of the covenant people. God doesn't have to reveal this to Pharaoh. God is doing something. God is showing the need for deliverance. He's creating the platform for deliverance. And he, he reveals in this dream, and actually in these two dreams, that, that there are going to be seven years, as Joseph will interpret for him, seven years of plenty, seven years of want, and that that want is going to be very severe. Now, it is, um, it's interesting in the dream, if we, we're not going to look at them in great detail, but, but you, have, um, you have the river, that the cows are by, and, and you have the wind coming on the ears of corn and, and grain. And, um, and Jonathan Edwards, I think he's right, speculated that, that the, the river and the wind were the course of divine providence. They represented the course of divine providence. Here's what God's doing. God is going to make the land abound for a time, and then he's going to bring a famine. And, and as you go through this passage, one of the interesting things that you see, and this is where it's so important to pay attention to detail and to listen to what the Lord is saying, that the language of the famine and the severity of the famine and the far-reaching effects of the famine constantly resurface. This is not just some little light affliction. This is a global famine. And then that begs the question, why does God send a global famine? You know, in, in the 17th century, uh, writers, would, we would call this providentialist historians, uh, they, would, they would look at an event, and, and sometimes mistakenly, but oftentimes probably not mistakenly, they would factor what God was doing with this great fire or this earthquake or this flood, this natural disaster. That, that's one of the most politically incorrect things. Uh, to do in our day, which really says a lot about our depravity and how important we think we are and how much we hate the idea of the all-sovereign God ruling and reigning. It is impossible when we come to a passage like this not to read this as providence history, theological workings of God. He sends a famine, and that famine is a picture of barrenness. It's a picture of what Adam brought into the world. It's a, it's a picture of the extreme misery of sin. It's a picture of what men deserve. Now, please come to terms with that fact. When, when we say as believers that I deserve the judgment of God, we are also saying we deserve no good thing in this life. We are necessarily saying I don't deserve 
a drop of water. Now God says that he makes his sun shine on the ungodly, sends rain. Well, by nature, we're all ungodly. Please come to terms with that fact. We don't deserve the kindnesses of the Lord. We don't deserve the blessings and the bounty. We don't deserve to be able to go to a grocery store and walk in and come out just full like we do. And here the Lord is teaching a lesson. He's teaching a lesson about sin and about judgment, what men deserve. He's teaching a lesson about the need for deliverance and redemption. He's teaching men that apart from him there is no blessing. There is no goodness. There is no bounty that that if he treats according, and, and Egypt is not a good nation. It's a nation of idolaters, and the whole world is a nation of idolaters. And contrary to what so many tell us in our day about idolaters being good people, the Bible says that our idolatry deserves the judgment of God. You know, I I often wonder, and I try to think, in my lifetime, I have seen nothing but blessing. That's true for you as well. And yet, almost every generation from the fall on, have seen unbelievable hardship. Famines and pestilence, war. Um, John Piper says, this is Disney World. It's Disney World. And we get used to it. And we think, this is what it should be. And the Great Depression happens. And, and outbreaks happen. And we should prepare ourselves for that. I just want to say that as an aside this morning. We should prepare ourselves for that instead of just going through living for all the bounty and all the joys and pleasures and things that we, we love so much. Because here we see that, that there needed to be preparation for this. And the Lord is being merciful. Here's one of the wonderful things about this. God doesn't have to reveal this to Pharaoh. And in doing so, he's doing something akin to what he does with Jonah and Nineveh, isn't he? He is sending Jonah in there 40 days, and Nineveh is no more. What did that mean? That meant there's the hope of mercy. There's the hope of grace. There's the hope of God's intervention and deliverance. The very fact that God is revealing what's coming, the misery that's coming, the judgment that's coming, he is doing that so it will be a platform for the deliverance that he has purposed and planned. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So rather than pushing those things out and saying, I don't want to hear about that, We should realize these are platforms. These are platforms for us to deal with what we are and what we deserve and what all men are and and what God is doing. And so the Lord is is setting the stage for a deliverer. He is using this course of divine providence represented by the river and the wind, by the famine that is coming from his hand. And he is doing all of that to set in stage everything he's going to do now with Joseph and for the old covenant church. Um, I just want to say this briefly. Think often and think much of your need for deliverance spiritually. Think often and think much of your need for deliverance spiritually. It's one of the greatest things you can do is to come to terms with the fact that we are hopeless and helpless, that we are under the wrath and curse of God by nature, that we deserve nothing good from the Lord, and that he would be absolutely just 
if we perished forever at his hand, at his righteous hand. Now, the language actually we'll, we'll use the language of perishing, famine over all the land, um, uh, that, that, that there is, there is uh, this danger of everyone perishing. And, and so God is placing that out there for them to reckon with and for us to. But then secondly, and really where this passage is focusing, is God is raising up a deliverer. He's exalting a deliverer. Now, um, Joseph, as I've noted in this series already, is never ambitious. It's very interesting to me. He's never trying to be this great leader. He's just, he's learning to trust the Lord in, in the difficult places, in the low places. He's becoming who the Lord wants him to be in obscurity and in, in the dungeon. He, he, is, he is being, in a sense, he is very real sense, he's being broken down. Um, he's learning to become trustworthy where he is. He's learning not to be viewed, uh, viewing himself as a victim. That's a very important lesson. Um, I can't tell you how much I hear people using victim language today constantly. Um, Joseph has been a victim. Joseph has been a victim, but he doesn't wallow in self-pity. He is learning to become the man God wants him to be. Harry Reader puts it this way, wherever Joseph goes, he is a change agent. I really like that. Wherever Joseph goes, he's a change agent. He's not a victim. Wherever Joseph goes, he's trustworthy. Even as a slave, his master could trust his wife to Joseph. When everything was taken from him, what would Joseph do? Whether in the pit, in Potiphar's house, or in prison, he, was a, he became a life-changing leader because he refused the luxury of self-pity. I thought that was a very important point. He refused the luxury of self-pity He was faithful over little. Now he is about to be over a whole nation. But let me say, as I've made that point, and as God wants us to learn to be shaped into men and women that trust him and who are trustworthy and who are humble and who are not self-pitying and who are seeking to serve the Lord where we are, as we've seen time and time again now in Joseph's life, Joseph never sought leadership for himself. He never positioned himself. He never padded backs to get ahead. He didn't try to get in the inner ring as C.S. Lewis talks about them. He didn't put himself in a place of self-advancement. He was content. Oh my, what a lesson. What a hard lesson to learn. You know, we often talk about besetting sins, and, um, and, and we usually go to those sins that are much more egregious in nature or, or troubling to our own souls in nature. Positioning ourselves to get ahead is a besetting sin for almost everybody. Seeking greatness for ourselves rather than seeking to be faithful. Joseph is seeking to be faithful. And so what that means, and this is the really amazing thing of this chapter, he is an unexpected deliverer. It's unexpected. There's nothing expected about Joseph. Joseph was forgotten in prison. In Joseph's mind, he's spending the rest of his life there. It's been two years since the cupbearer forgot him. Joseph is content to be faithful where he is. He's not seeking self-advancement. And God says, Joseph will be the man. God has the cupbearer remember Joseph 
before Pharaoh and say, there is a Hebrew, there is a slave. He interpreted dreams for me. He can interpret these dreams that no one else seems to be, even though they're not that difficult, the dreams, to interpret. He is an unexpected deliverer. He's an unlikely deliverer. I mean, he's a Hebrew slave. And this is Pharaoh, the most powerful pagan leader in the world of Joseph's day. For him to be brought before that man was unlikely. He was the least likely candidate. And yet God had him exalted instantly because of what the Lord was doing with Joseph and the deliverance that God was going to bring about through Joseph. He was an unexpected deliverer. He was an unlikely deliverer. And consequently, and very interestingly, he becomes the universal deliverer. Now, while I'm sort of getting ahead here a little bit, you'll see as the passage moves that this famine's in Egypt and the focus is on Egypt and it's on Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream and and all the interaction and Pharaoh then exalting Joseph and Joseph coming up with that four-part plan with perfect wisdom and skillfulness. And, And then ultimately the outcome is we're told the famine wasn't just in Egypt, it was over all the earth. And and. They carried out Joseph's plan, and it worked, and Egypt had bread, and all the nations around them didn't, so that everyone has to come to Joseph. So one night, he is in prison, falsely accused. Almost overnight, he is the deliverer of the world. Now, there are a couple principles we can take away from this. One of those principles God often uses his people, though they are unlikely. He will often use them before ungodly leaders and rulers. He will raise up certain individuals who are godly, who are not self-seeking, who are trustworthy, who are faithful, who are wise, who are humble. And and we should want that. We should want God to do that in this world. Um, Jesus told the apostles, you're going to stand before kings and rulers. And they did, in chains. They proclaimed Jesus to the most powerful men in the world in chains, in prison. God exalts his servants, and God uses them in special ways. God has exalted Joseph. There is another principle here, and and that is that Joseph behaves himself with incredible wisdom as the deliverer. And, And I think that's really highlighted in this passage. You know, when Pharaoh is listening to Joseph and he's had the dream interpreted, notice verse 38. Um, after the proposal that Joseph makes pleases Pharaoh, notice this. Pharaoh says to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Now, Joseph has been bearing witness to the living God. He is before the most powerful man in the world. Everybody under him has been mistreating Joseph. And now he's before the man that can do the most harm to him. And when Pharaoh says to him, here's the dream I've had. I heard you can interpret dreams. Joseph says, I can't. God can. That's not humble brag. He's not doing that sort of, um, oh, no, I don't deserve that. But inside, feeling like I do. He really has learned to empty himself, to trust the Lord. And now before the most powerful ruler in the world, he is bearing witness to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is bearing witness to Yahweh, the true and living God. And and he says, God can interpret your dreams, and then God does, and the speed with which Joseph interprets those dreams shows that it's supernatural. 
He doesn't go and pray. He instantly knows. He instantly has a plan. It's as if God just downloaded it into Joseph's mind. Automatic download. And Pharaoh recognizes it's not natural. And Pharaoh says, can we find anyone in whom there is the spirit of God and therefore such wisdom? And so we see that God uses a man that he makes wise and understanding and makes him faithful, not just skillful, but faithful in his witness to the living and true God and the work of God. Notice that Pharaoh says to Joseph in verse 39, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. The Proverbs, um, I'll never forget as a young Christian, one of my friends telling uh, a young man who was newly enlisted in the army, he said to him, um, Alex, if you want to become a general one day, you should read the Proverbs every single day of your life. I get that more 15 years later. Um, the Bible says, whatever you do, get wisdom. Whatever you do, get wisdom. And we are all lacking so much wisdom. Um, Joseph is getting wisdom. God is building him up and making him the wise leader, because at the end of the day, what exalts Joseph is the wisdom of God, the spirit of God. The wisdom of God exalts Joseph. The wisdom of God makes Joseph the, the deliverer that God has intended him to be. The wisdom of God has made Joseph the man that God has wanted him to be and has put him in the place where God wants to use him. And yet, this is not natural in Joseph. You know, I, I've been thinking about the importance of the words of 1 Corinthians 1, where the Apostle Paul is reminding this church that kind of got uh, puffed up on how sophisticated they thought they were. They had, they had highly intelligent, articulate ministers coming in and heaping scorn on the Apostle Paul. And, and Paul reminds them what they were. He says to them, look, remember your calling. Remember what you were. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen. The things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Why does God choose people that in and of themselves are not wise? Joseph, when we first met him at 17, was not wise. He was sort of braggadocio with his brothers. Wearing flaunting in his fancy coat, showing off that he was the favorite, telling him his fancy dreams. Remember the dreams? Telling him they're all going to bow down to him. They are going to bow down to him. God is going to fulfill that, but God has emptied him. He's shown him that in and of himself he's foolish and he's nothing. He's been in the pit, he's been falsely accused, he's been in prison, he's been forgotten. And now God has loaded him with his wisdom, and he's exalted him. Um, while there are all those lessons, and there's so many more lessons in here, this, this is all, and, and it's, it's impossible for our minds not to go to the Lord Jesus. It's, it's absolutely impossible. I mean, here's Joseph. He's humbled, he's exalted, death and resurrection, twice. By the way, I'll come back to that in a second. 
um, there's this little clause in here where um, Joseph tells Pharaoh, the reason you had this dream twice was so that you would know God is going to do what he has said. And, and through the whole life of Joseph, there's this really amazing pattern. I had never seen this before. There's this just amazing pattern where everything happens to Joseph twice. So he, he's, um, he's, he is tempted twice. He is, um, he is thrown into the dungeon, as it were, twice, and then brought out and exalted twice. Um, he is falsely accused twice. He has that at the beginning, the dream twice. Then, then he interprets the dream, the two dreams in the prison. Now Pharaoh has the two dreams and Joseph is telling Pharaoh, there's a reason why you have all these things happening twice. God is showing that he is accomplishing what he is accomplishing. And ultimately God is going to accomplish everything he came to accomplish in Jesus, the ultimate redeemer, who he's going to exalt from death, who he's going to raise from the dead, who's going to make sit at his right hand who is going to dispense all the grain. As he says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever feeds on me will live because of me. He is the deliverer of the whole world. All the nations will come to the Son of God. All the nations will come to the greater Joseph. Everyone is to go to him. Everyone is to see the wisdom God has given him. In fact, Jesus said he is the wisdom of God. He spoke of himself as the very wisdom of God. The spirit of God is upon me, he says in Isaiah. And God has found one who is wise among the people, and he has exalted him over the nations. Joseph is a picture of the Lord Jesus. Joseph was a prophet. He revealed dreams. Who, who revealed more of things to come than the Lord Jesus? Who who reveals more than the Lord Jesus of the judgment to come, the warning, the need for deliverance. Um, you know, I often, often sort of wince when I hear uh, people say, well, you know, I, I don't want to hear what Paul says. I want to hear what Jesus says. Listen, that is somebody who has obviously never read the Gospels because when you read the parables in Matthew 25, when you read the parable of, of the ten virgins, when you read the parable of the sheep and the goats, um, those are not comforting parables. Those are searching. Those are warning parables. Those are eschatological warnings. Um, there, is, there is something so wonderful about the typology, and, and I think if you wrestle with that, Notice the language, um, and the Apostle John almost lifts it out of verse 55. Um, when, when Pharaoh implements this plan and Joseph is exalted to become the savior of the world and the, the deliverer of the world and to save those who come to him from perishing, notice the language of Pharaoh. Pharaoh says to the people, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do it. That's the language of Cana, isn't it? The wedding of Cana of Galilee, where they had, they had run out of wine. And Jesus' mother says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Go to Jesus. Go to the deliverer. Everything in this chapter is moving to that language in, ver in verse 55. Go to Joseph. Now, that means that when we come to terms with the fact that 
we need deliverance, that there is a day coming, a, a famine of God's blessing and a day of God's judgment, and it's coming. Um, and you may not like to think about it, but it's coming. Jesus says it's coming like a thief in the night. It's going to be quick. You know, I was thinking about this, Joseph, life of Joseph, slow, 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 quick. It's the same with Jesus' life. I mean, the majority of his messianic ministry happens in a little over a tenth of his life. And, and it's drawn out, and then death and resurrection. And Jesus says there's a day coming when human history doesn't just drag out and the rivers of God's providence stop, and he's coming as a thief in the night. And that means as I come to terms with the fact that I will be accountable on that day, and as you come to terms with the fact that we are accountable um, on Judgment Day, we need a deliverer, and we need to go to Jesus, and we need to learn to trust him as Joseph did, and to flee to him, and to realize he's the only source of life. You know, there's this beautiful picture. Joseph saves the world with the granary of Egypt. Jesus saves the world with the rich grain of heaven. Isn't that beautiful? He gives the rich grain of himself to his people. He says, come, without money, without price. Buy wine and milk without money, without price. Come to me and live. Eat and let your soul live. He is the hiding place. He is the deliverer. He is the redeemer. There is no other redeemer. Joseph is the only deliverer for the whole world. Only God's wisdom in the unlikely and unexpected Joseph saves the world. Only God's wisdom in the unlikely and unexpected crucified son of God saves the world. That's it. God, God invests his wisdom in Christ crucified. It's not in trying to be a great leader or live a good life or try to be a good person or get involved in humanitarian causes or leave your mark in changing the world. Go to Jesus. I, I, if I could, I can't do the work of the Holy Spirit for us, but if I could, I would send you from this place with those words ringing in your ears. Go to Jesus. Go to him. Cry out to him. Call on him. Commune with him. Stay close to him. Now, this, this is what the old psalm writers, uh, the old hymn writers did. And as I was thinking about this, those words of, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, just washed over me, where the, the, um, the hymn writer says, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. We will be feeding on him for all eternity. Forever, he will be dispensing the bread of heaven to us, his body broken for us. He will forever, he says, my, my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He says, he says, whoever feeds on me will live because of me. That is the greater Joseph. That is the exalted redeemer. That is the one filled with all the wisdom of God, and he is there to give you deliverance. I want to ask you this morning, if uh, first and foremost you've seen your need for deliverance, if you've come to terms with the fact truly, really, that you deserve judgment, um, that you're not just giving lip service to that, but you really understand there's a day of judgment coming. And then I want to ask, have you come? To, have you gone to the greater Joseph? Have you gone to Jesus Christ? Not, not have you known in your head and, and just simply talked about him. Do you go to him? Do you cry out to him in prayer? Do you, does your soul cleave to the Lord Jesus in faith? That's, that's what going to him means. And then, 
Um, I want to make a doxological application this morning. You know, this passage ends on this crescendo where Joseph gets all the glory. Nobody's looking at Pharaoh. They're all looking. Joseph gets all the glory. Jesus gets all the glory for being the deliverer. He gets all the honor and the glory. And that means as we go from this place, we go celebrating and rejoicing and praising Oh, the depths, oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Who can know the mind of the Lord? And yet he has revealed it to us by holding his son out. The depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God in the deliverer. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we are by nature a foolish people and that we by nature do not often acknowledge our need for redemption and deliverance from our sin and from the judgment to come. And we pray, our God, that you would make those things real to us, even as you did to Pharaoh and to Egypt and to the world through Joseph. And we pray, our Father, that you would reveal everything to us in the scriptures by virtue of your son's prophetic ministry. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the exalted and reigning Christ, the wisdom of God. We pray that you would make that wisdom known to us this morning in our understanding the gospel in our souls and the application of your sacrifice, that we would see more of the wisdom and and the unsearchable riches that you have stored up for us, Father, in Jesus Christ. And pray that everyone in this room would go to him, that we would go for the first time, that we would go for the 10,000th time. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would draw us by your grace, that you would make us to see your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen.